Uh, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're looking today at one of the great central themes of all Christianity, the theme of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's no other passage in all the Word of God that so fleshes out, so systematizes, and so explains the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection as well, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we're excited to look at this passage. Often we look at it only at the Easter services, Resurrection Day, and it's so good to be able to look at it at other times as well. Uh, Paul begins this book, this chapter, with uh, the first 11 verses talking about the proof of the resurrection, the historical fact of the resurrection. And I was going to give you, I thought about giving you a number of quotes of different scholars and theologians and philosophers and historians over the centuries who have uh, verified the resurrection, looked at the details, studied them out, uh, challenged them, and came away with absolute certainty that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has taken place. But I'm not going to do that. You can look those up. There's myriads of them. But I'm, going, I'm not going to do that because I doubt there's very many people in the room today who actually doubt the resurrection of Christ. Uh, there might be a few that question some things. There might be some times of doubt. But I don't think there's many of you that really would challenge that. But the question is, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean to us and to you? That's the big issue. One cynic a few years ago uh, said after examining all the facts and all the details that there's absolutely no doubt that Jesus Christ did die on the cross and he was resurrected from the grave. That's not in question. But his response was interesting. His response was, so what? The death of, uh, and resurrection of, uh, of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago has no relevancy to modern mankind today. That was his opinion. So the question is, uh, what does it matter that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected? What does it matter to the, the world and what does it matter to you? That he died for our sins and was resurrected from the grave. But this is such an important issue that Paul spends his whole chapter on it. And uh, we're going to look at that today. And here's our question today that we're, we will examine with Paul. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ important? And Paul's going to give us five reasons why the resurrection is important in the verses we'll look at today. First of all, without it, we, our faith is worthless. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been, has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Some of the people at Corinth, some of the Christians at Corinth were not denying, I want you to get this, they were not denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, that they were denying the resurrection of the believer. The bodily resurrection of you and I. They challenged that. And the reason they challenged that is because the Greek philosophies of the day, the worldview of the time, was that uh, the body was a throwaway. The body was, was polluted and corrupt. And, and death was looked forward to for being our souls being released from our bodies. And we'd no longer be chained to this earth, no longer chained to, to our bodies that are, that are limited, and we'd be free to be what we could be, and ultimately sort of go back to the uh, whole universe itself, much like Buddhism teaches in its philosophies today. That was the Greek worldview. And so to have a resurrected body was unwanted by the Greek society, and it was unthinkable by many. Matter of fact, one philosopher of the time said, the hope of the resurrection is the hope of swine. That's, that's how excited they were about the idea of resurrection. So they had little respect for the body, 
uh, at all, and they viewed it as dirty and polluted. So it had to be shocked when in chapter 6, verse 19, the Apostle Paul said that our bodies as believers are the temples of the Holy Spirit. God lives in our bodies, he said in that passage. That had to really blow their minds because that's not something they would believe and not something that they wanted to believe. So the message of Christianity is at complete odds with the secular thinking of the times and it's at complete odds with the secular thinking of today. Christianity, the message of the scriptures, are always countercultural, And sometimes that's hard for us to grasp. We're already, always at odds with the world system. Always. A way we think, the way we behave, the what we value is at odds with the world and the unbelievers around us. Uh, it's countercultural. Let me say it this way. You're weird. Okay, you got it? You, you're, the world sees you as weird, as strange, as different. Let me, let me tick off a few things on why, how weird and how countercultural we are. We believe in a God who we have never seen and cannot see, and we worship him. We believe in a, in a Jesus Christ, a Savior who went to the cross to die for our sins and take our sins on Him and then resurrect for, from the dead, as we'll see today. Uh, we trust in an ancient book that we're looking at today, thousands of years old, that, that uh, we believe is authoritatively written by God and given to us to tell us how to live life here and now and how to honor Him. We join together in a church like this, and people are doing it all over the world today, we join together in churches to come together, for, and, and our central reason we come together has nothing to do with our personalities, our, our philosophy, our sports events, or whatever else. We come centered around Jesus Christ. Who does that? Why would people do such a thing? We sing songs like we sung today about Christ and about God and, and how much we love Him and how much He means to us. Uh, we listen to a sermon like this one, all those that are listening anyway, that, that's based upon this ancient book of truth that God has given us. We wrap our lives, if we're Christians, around the truth of God and what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And we're looking forward to a new body that God gives us that we'll live with him forever and ever. Who believes that stuff? I hope you do, right? Say amen if you do. All right, good. I hope you were there. Uh, what, what, a, what a weird people we are. We're countercultural. Nobody believes what we believe. And it's when we try to blur the edges, when we try to fit in, when we try to adopt the world's views as much as possible that the church begins to go astray. Listen, embrace your weirdness. Some of you are real good at that. Embrace, embrace our differences. Embrace the fact that we're not like anyone else. We're not trying to be like anybody else. We're not trying to sing their songs. We're not trying to look like them. We're not trying to act like them. We are God's people. And that's a big difference that the world doesn't like and the world doesn't accept. Jesus said, the world hated me. It'll hate you. Don't be surprised if that's the case. Well, the Corinthians had tried to adopt the, the worldview of the times concerning the body and as a result of that, apparently a lot of them had, because in this book, as we've gone through it together, we've seen some strange things from Christians, haven't we? We've seen Christians suing one another. We've seen Christians are getting drunk at the communion service. We've seen Christians in chapter 6, not in chapter 5, committing immorality that even the world was shocked by, and in chapter 6, visiting prostitutes down at the temple. Christians. How could they do that? Well, first of all, they were young Christians, and so they were learning. But secondly... 
They had adopted the worldview of the body. And they believed that whatever they did with their body was okay. It didn't affect their souls. It didn't, didn't change their hearts. It was, it was external. And they could do whatever they wanted to with their bodies because it didn't affect who they really were as a person. We have a very similar philosophy floating around in the world today. And so they believed, they believed then that uh, they could do whatever they wanted to with their bodies and it didn't matter. That's buying into the worldview. Of course, they were wrong about all that and Paul tells them so and hopefully they changed. But at this point right now, they did believe in the resurrection of Jesus because they had to to be saved, as we'll see in a second. But secondly, they did not believe in the resurrection of themselves and of other Christians. That fits, by the way, very clearly, very closely with where we are today in America. According to one of the latest polls I read, in America, 64% of, of Americans believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but only 37% believe that people re- resurrect from the dead. So we're not too far from the Corinthian idea. So we understand then how Paul is, what he's up against, and he details in this particular chapter the information concerning the doctrine of the resurrection. Going back to, to the early part of the chapter, verse 1 and 2, we see that he has said that you must believe in the resurrection to be saved. He said, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are also saved. So believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel message that we must believe in order to be saved. And there's nobody in this room that can be a Christian who doesn't believe in those particular details. In verses 3 and 4, he goes on to talk about Christ dying for our sins and resurrecting for us on the third day according to the scriptures. And so the first reason that Christ was raised from the dead in verses 12 to 19 as he goes on is unless that happened, our faith is in vain, it's hollow, it's empty, it's nothing. Completely nothing. Now why is that so? What does a resurrection do for us? We're going to go back to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Stay, right, stay there in 1 Corinthians with something. But I'm going to go back to Romans and look at a few verses today three different times. So very quickly each time, but you might mark Romans chapter 1 here and verses 3 and 4. Why would our faith be empty without the resurrection? Romans chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, he was incarnate, he truly came to this earth, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So he died for us, that's, that's implied here, but he was declared the Son of God by the power at the resurrection. What happened at the resurrection? He died for our sins, but at the resurrection, there was a declaration by God that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be. It was God's de- declaration, God's proclamation that Jesus Christ was not simply a man born on this earth and died a martyr's death. He was resurrected from the dead and he was declared at that point what? The Son of God. He had always been the Son of God, but he was declared for all the world to see that he was the Son of God at that point. That means that that he was declared the victor over death, the victor over the devil, that he was the Lord of everything, 
and that he's the savior of the redeemed and he came to set us free from sin. That was the declaration. If Christ had not risen from the grave, then we have no hope of the resurrection of ourselves. If God cannot raise his own son from the grave, what hope would we have that he could ever raise us from the grave? You know, sometimes people talk about, especially in our society, about Jesus being a good man, a good teacher, a, uh, you know, a, a good example, moral, that kind of stuff. Do you realize how ridiculous that is if Christ is not who he claimed to be? If Jesus Christ claimed to be the Son of God who came to die for our sins and resurrect to declare himself the Son of God, if he did that, if that's what he said he's going to do, which he said repeatedly, and he didn't do it, then Jesus Christ is not a good example. He's not a good teacher. He's not a good moral man. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. And he's deceived millions and millions of people throughout the ages to follow him when they, when they should never have done so, if he is not truly who he claimed to be. The best attended church services, worship services in Christianity over the world is on Easter. People flock out on Easter. The second best attended is Christmas. People flock out a lot of times at Christmas. In the, in the preacher world, we call those Christers. Okay, people that show up at Christmas and Easter are priesters. Our question is why? Why did they show up to begin with? But don't come any other time. And don't give the Lord much time of their life any other time. Except Christmas and Easter for some strange reason. They attend Christmas, Easter service, and I don't like the word Easter even, but I'm using it, Resurrection Day. As they come to those services and they, hope, they sing songs about the resurrection, Hopefully they hear a sermon that has something to do with the resurrection. And then they go home to uh, check out the Easter bunny, who surprisingly apparently lays colored eggs and hides them in the yard for kids to find. I don't quite get that. Quite frankly, I, I think a lot of Christians think high, more highly of the Easter bunny than they think of Jesus Christ. At least they spend more time thinking about him. Most many spend more time coloring and hiding eggs than they do in, in worshiping and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the way, friends, it ought to be if Jesus did not raise from the dead. It should just be a religious service. Come, enjoy, have a few songs, a short sermon, hopefully very short. Go home, live your life. If Jesus did not raise from the dead. But if he raised from the dead, everything has changed. His resurrection declared and proved who he was and what he'd come to do. If I, I might have used this illustration before, I don't know, but if I said I was Superman, anybody remember this? I don't. Okay, if I said I was Superman, and I'm going to prove it by climbing up there on that balcony rail, and I'm going to jump off and fly around this room, most of you underneath the balcony rail are going to split. <laughs> and then when I crumple on the floor, you're going to come over and a couple of you are going to look at me and give me a kick or two, see if I'm still alive. And whether I am or not, it's not going to matter much. You go out and get your cup of coffee and be late for Sunday school and then go home and live your life. Because, you know, I declared myself Superman, but I have no way to prove it. I'm just a liar. Jesus Christ is no liar. He is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And he proved it by the resurrection. 
Going back to our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ did not resurrect from the dead, our faith is worthless. Secondly, secondly, the scriptures are worthless. Verse 15, moreover, we have even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. Now he's talking here about those who've given us the word of God, the truth of scripture. Primarily, that's the apostles, who got the, the, the main author of Scripture, of course, is the Holy Spirit. But he used people to write this down and to proclaim it. And so he says, if, if we have lied to you about Jesus Christ, then we are false witnesses, we are liars, and you have no authoritative word from God. That's his point. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 says this, After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed by those of us who heard. Jude 17 says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have this book in front of us, this New Testament, because we have faithful witnesses of God who were given his word and they gave it to us. If, in fact, they too are liars, then we have nothing. We have no authoritative word. We have no message from God. And that's an awful horrible thing to even consider. All we're left with is a book of platitudes and and, and moralism and interesting stories, but no word from God. Second, thirdly, not only is our, if Christ did not resurrect, is our faith worthless and the scriptures are worthless. Thirdly, without it, we're still in our sins. It gets worse each time, by the way. We're still in our sins, verse 16, for the dead are, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Remember up in verse 14, he said that uh, if Christ has not been raised, then our our faith is vain or empty. Now he says that Christ has not been raised. He says we are still in our sins and our faith is absolutely worthless. It is a farce. We can have no faith in that which is false. Uh, recently on a trip we were taking, I, we were at a convenience store getting some uh, important things like Twinkies and uh, things you have to have on a trip, you know. And, and did you ever get in a line that didn't move? It, it, did you ever get in a line that moved? That's probably the better question. Well, I got in a line behind this guy. I thought I'd go get my, my Twinkies and my whatevers. And I'm standing in line behind this guy. And he buys his, his Twinkies and his cigarettes and whatever else. I wouldn't buy him cigarettes, by the way. And, and he had a $50 bill he paid for it with. The guy looked it over. This, he says, this is counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. I've never seen that happen, actually, in real life. Counterfeit $50 bill. This guy, at least seemingly, was shocked. He had faith in a $50 bill that was false, and he couldn't buy even Twinkies. It's false. What kind of a, of a life do you have if, you, if, the, if the message of Christ is not real, if you have faith in a message that is not real? Well, what it leads to, not only the things we've already said, but it leaves you in your sin. You have faith in Christ to save you from sin, and he can't save you from sin because he's still in a tomb somewhere in Jerusalem. Wow. It's an awful thing to consider. Verse 16 again. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. Now that leads me to a thought here, which is all over the New Testament, all over the Bible, 
but it's, often, it's missed by people all over the planet. What was your expectations when you came to Christ? What was the gospel message you heard that caused you to place your faith in Christ? Well, unfortunately, the most popular message today all over the planet and growing by leaps and bounds is that if you come to Jesus Christ, he'll give you a goodie bag that's filled with all your wildest dreams. Anything you want, Christ will give you if you just pray the sinner's prayer. It's all yours. Uh, are, you, are you wanting, uh, are you sad? Well, he'll give you happiness. Are, are you uh, a failure? Well, he'll give you success. Are you, uh, is, your, is your bank account getting drained? Well, he'll make you prosperous financially. Are you uh, in bad health? Well, he'll heal your body and make you as healthy as possible. Uh, are you emotionally drained? Well, he'll give you the thrills of a lifetime. Just come to Christ and he'll hand over the goodie bag of prosperity in all these areas. That is the gospel the majority of people think they have signed on for. And this tragedy of that, folks, is this. That is taught nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. And yet millions upon millions upon millions planet-wide think that is the gospel. What is the gospel? He tells us very clearly in one little, one little line here, you are still in your sins. In other words, Jesus Christ came to deliver us from sin. He came to give us the forgiveness that we could never find on our own. That is what he's come to give us. I want you to go back to Romans chapter 4. Once again, back to Romans like I mentioned to you. Go to 4 this time. Look at one verse with me. Verse 25. 425 goes this way. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Because of. He died because of our sins and he was raised because of our justification. He's not saying the resurrection justifies us. He's saying it's, it's God's stamp of, of, of proof that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. In other words, look at Here's a couple of illustrations. And you have a debt load that now has been paid and the stamp that's been placed over your debt load is paid in full. And the resurrection is that stamp of guarantee. Something happened kind of strange this last week or two. Our President Biden uh, forgave billions of dollars worth of student loans. And uh, we could argue about that out in the hallway about the uh, good things about that or bad. But uh, he is up and gave $10,000 to anybody who has a student loan and forgave that loan. Now, here's what I'm going to bet, okay? There are people in this room who think that's wrong, who have student loans. And if they get $10,000 of their student loans forgiven, no matter how much they oppose what Biden did, they're going to accept it. What do you think? I think so. If you're, if you're not going to, let me know, and we'll sign you up for one of our counseling sessions a little later on. Okay, so here we have it. Here's somebody with $10,000 worth of student loans. The president comes along, and he says, I've forgiven that loan, paid in full. You didn't deserve it. You, haven't, you didn't merit it, but you have been forgiven of $10,000. And so your loan has been transferred to someone else, that mystical person called the taxpayer. 
that loan has been transferred to someone else, and, and the stamp on your, on your loan is stamped, paid in full, by the President of the United States and all the willing taxpayers. It's over. It's gone. It's, it moved away. That's what happened in reality with your sin. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't merit it. But the Lord forgave your sin at the cross and stamped paid in full at the resurrection. He declared you justified. What a precious, precious thought. But we're not done. Go to chapter 6, verse 4. Look at another verse. I can look at all chapter 6 with you, but I'll, I'll limit to verse 4. 6, 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Look at this. On the one hand, our sins have been forgiven, paid in full. On the other hand, we walk in newness of life. We've been given new life in Jesus Christ. Could you imagine that? Who, who merits that? Who deserves that? No one. But at the resurrection, he says, those who come to him are given newness of life. And how sad it is then that Christians who've been forgiven and given newness of life, that some of them live as if they're in the, the garbage dumps of spirituality, never enjoying the privileges and the blessings and, and, the, and the positions that God has given us. Don't be that way, folks. Embrace what he's died for. Embrace what he was resurrected for. Forgiveness of sin at and newness of life. But now it gets worse. Go back to our passage. Keeps getting worse, doesn't it? Verse 18. Faith, if no resurrection, then our faith is worthless. If no resurrection, the scriptures are worthless. If no resurrection, you're still in your sins. Verse 18, if no resurrection, you have no hope. No hope. There is all, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who have died have perished. Now this, in the Greek structure of these words, this, mean, this is a final thing. There is no reprieve. It's a done deal. There is no hope. No resurrection, no, no future. No resurrection, no hope. Those believers who have gone to their grave full of hope and confidence that they'll open their eyes in eternity and see Jesus Christ were, were deceived. They have no hope. It's all a sad joke because there was no resurrection. We don't have time to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 today, but remember that passage of Scripture where it talks about the Lord rapturing his people to be with himself, and it begins with the words, I want to give you hope. And it ends with the words, by, verse 18, by saying, that I want to comfort you with these words. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and his coming again is the very essence of our hope. It's the very essence of our comfort. I've had the privilege of doing many, many funerals over the years as a pastor, and what a, it's a really a great joy when the, when the person who's passed on is a believer, and their loved one stands up here often right before the casket, before it's closed or at the graveside, and they're saying goodbye to their loved one who knew Christ, and as they do so, they can honestly say, based on the death and the resurrection of Christ, they can honestly say, not goodbye, but see you later. Not, not goodbye, but we'll be together in heaven for eternity. Not goodbye, but one day we'll join together to see Christ as we go up to be with him forever. It's not over because of the hope of the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. But for those that don't have that hope, how sad. Most of my funerals that I've done have been for people that knew Christ. Once in a while, I'm called upon to preach a message for someone that doesn't know Christ. I was even asked about that today. How, what do you do with that? Folks, are, there's not much you can say. There's no hope. You can, you can glorify the person's life, and, and you, can, you can say they were a good person. I, I've often mentioned one funeral I did when I asked the husband about his wife, and I said, why can I say good about her? I didn't know him. They'd asked me to preach it. And I said, why can I say that, you know, that would be good? And he said, well, you know, she was a great bowler and loved beer. <laughs> well, I didn't use that in the sermon. And I personally just went around what he said and gave the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who knows? Maybe that gal knew Christ and we didn't know it. I don't know. But if you don't have that hope today, folks, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you haven't placed your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sin, you have no hope in eternity. That's an awful thing to think, isn't it? Over in Dante's famous divine comedy poem, he has a sign over hell that says, all hope is abandoned for all who enter here. No hope forever and ever and ever. But Jesus Christ died for our sins, resurrected to declare himself the son of God and gives us eternal hope if we know him. But those that have fallen asleep without that hope will perish. One more thing here. Maybe it's worse. He concludes verse 19 by saying this. Without the resurrection, we are most pitied people. We of all people are most to be pitied. Verse 19. We, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Some people have challenged this verse. Uh, probably the most famous person is the philosopher theologian by the name of Pascal, who uh, is known today by most people. He lived in the 17th century. He's known by most people today for the Pascal's wager. It's a gamble. Here's his wager. The theologians have been debating this for 400 years. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gamble my life on Jesus Christ. I'm going to believe in him. I'm going to put all my chips on, his, on him. And if I am wrong and I die and there is nothing more, then I haven't lost anything because I have lived a good life, an enjoyable life, and, uh, and I lost nothing. But if you place all your chips against Christ and you die, then you've lost everything because you go out to a Christless eternity and you, play, you bet it against Jesus Christ. I've lost nothing, but you could lose everything. That's Pascal's wager. So the, that's a good question. I mean, we think about that for a moment. I, as a Christian, I have lived a very good life. Uh, I've, I've been able to avoid many of the sins and complications that come with sin. I've had a good life. I, I sure can't complain about hardly anything at all. And, uh, and when I die, I plan to go to be with Jesus Christ. Well, how much better could it get than that? If I'm wrong... And if there is no future, he says, then still you had a good life, right? But Paul doesn't say that, okay? I don't think he agrees with Pascal. Instead, he says, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
So if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and he is not real, he is not who he claimed to be, and he's still in a tomb somewhere in Jerusalem, you are pitiful. Why? Well, I think there's two reasons for that. Number one is because in verse 32, you didn't have a, the good time you could have had. <laughs> Look at verse 32. He says this, if, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just live it up. Let's live for ourselves. Let's have the best time we can have no matter what the consequences because tomorrow we're going to die anyway, so who cares? Remember a couple weeks ago when I quoted a Peggy Lee's song, Is That All There Is? If that's all there is in this life, then let's live it up. Paul seems to say, yeah, that's probably true. But that isn't all there is. But if that's all there is, then we're pitiful. Secondly, and I think this is really what he's probably after. If we have lived in this life following Christ, we have lived deceived. We have lived a lie. Our whole life has been based on that which is false. And folks, there's hardly anything more pitiful than somebody living out a lie. And so he has both of those in mind. If Christ did not resurrect from the dead, you in this room who trust in him are pitiful creatures and need to be pitied by the world. If on the other hand, he is the Lord of the universe, he is the savior of those who trust in him. If he's the one who's been declared the son of God empowered by God at the resurrection and you've trusted in him, you're not to be pitied. There's nobody quite like you. What a glorious thing the Lord has done for you. And when you stand at, when, you, when it's time for the Lord to take you home, you can look at your loved ones and say, yes, someday we'll be together forever and ever. There's a song we sing at Christmas sometimes. One, one of the verse goes like this. I want to close with it. It goes like this. Who is he that from the grave comes to heal and help and save? Who is he that from his throne rules through all the earth alone? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. Tis the Lord, O King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him. Crown him. Lord of all. That's who he is because he's conquered death for you and I. Come to save us from our sins. Resurrect us to eternal life to be with him forever. Crown him. Crown him. Lord of all. Father, we thank you for the privilege of crowning you in our feeble way to give you praise and honor and glory for what you've done for us in your death and resurrection to people that don't deserve anything but eternal hell. You've died for us, resurrected for us. Father, I thank you with all my heart. In Christ's name, amen.